Has anyone done any international travel recently? Couple people, couple people, or even not recently. Uh, but international travel is not easy. Chip and Rob had to go through several flights, an 18-hour boat ride. It took about a solid two days, two and a half days, to get to their final destination. Now, I have a little story about international travel. My family went on vacation in July, and one of our stops, our first stop, was Niagara Falls on the New York side. And I had been there as a child, but the kids and Chip had never been there, so we were pretty excited to see it. But, you know, you, you think about, all right, well, the Canadian side is just right there, right? It's just a little bit farther, maybe a five, ten-minute drive. So we thought, since we're that close, let's see if we can get into Canada. Now, the problem is, the only one of us with a valid passport is Chip. I have a driver's license. My daughter has a driver's license. Ben didn't need one. So I thought, all right, well, let me just Google this and see. Maybe, maybe they'll let you in with just a driver's license. You know what? It turns out, if you look hard enough, you can always find a website that says what you want it to say. <laughs> always, even if it's not accurate. So I found one website that said, yeah, you can cross into Canada at Niagara Falls, at least, anyway, with a driver's license. So it turns out that is not correct. But we thought, all right, well, we're here. And in fact, we actually asked, we went to a restaurant the night before, the night that we got there, we asked the server, hey, do you know, can you use a driver's license? She said, yeah, I think you can. So we decided we're just going to try it. And the worst thing that can happen is they say no, and we just turn around and just go back to the New York side. Also, that is not the worst thing that can happen. <laughs> so, so here's how this went. And I don't know if, if you've had the experience of customs or a border crossing, immigration, it, it's, I don't know if it's just me, but I find it extremely intimidating. Something about it, like just pulling up to that or walking up to that, it puts me in a panic. Even though I, I'm doing nothing wrong, I just want to see the water, I get in a panic. And I've done international travel a bunch, but for some reason it never gets easier for me. So we were driving up to the border crossing. The, the uh, agent is talking to us and he asked for our passports. We explained the whole thing. We don't have them. We were told we could just get in with our driver's license. And he, he said, well, no, you can't. But he's clicking some things on his computer and and then he asked a question, and it was a good one. He said, where are you from? And, and you know how you hear people say, your, your life flashes before your eyes? I, f I think I get what that means now. And not my entire life, but in the, in the span of the three seconds from when he asked the question and when Chip answered the question, which I was thankful it was Chip and not me, and you'll understand why when I tell you. About maybe three seconds went by, between where are you from and Chip's answer. But here's what went through my mind in that quick span of time. Where am I from? Where am I from? And I'm thinking, okay, well, we're staying in New York, so we're from New York, right? We're staying on the New York side. And then I'm thinking, no, we're not from New York. So then I think, well, okay, I grew up in Wycliffe, which is a little town on the east side of Cleveland. And 
And then I think, well, no. My dad's family's from Lebanon. Am I from there? My mom's family's from Canada. I'm trying to get into Canada. I'm from Canada. And then Chip just calmly said, Ohio. I'm like, oh, yeah, we're from Ohio. That was the correct answer. I don't know I was in such a panic. I just I had to pull myself together. So the guy's clicking a little more, and, and he says, well, I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to let you in. And so we're thinking, oh, that's super cool. So he gives us our licenses back, and we go on through. We have a great day in Canada. And all of this was really great until it was time to come back. <laughs> and we didn't think that part through. So we get, and now it's evening, right? It's dark out, it's raining, it's, there's a whole thing. And we get up to the border crossing, and of course it's a different guy. And this guy was not quite so friendly. So he asked for our passports. We have to explain the whole thing, we don't have them. And he, his response, he was pretty stern. Like he's stern, he's serious, he's not smiling. He does not appear to be happy with us. And he, he said, uh, no passports. So what happened there? And I'm, that panic is rising again. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, well, just ask us where we're from, because I got it this time. <laughs> but his question was citizenship. He just said citizenship. And Chip said yes, which wasn't the right answer. So we the United States. So he said, well, you weren't supposed to be in here. They shouldn't have let you in. Well, we know. So he's. He's typing a lot, and then he's kind of not talking to us. And time is going by, like minutes are going by, and I'm starting to think we're not getting back into the United States today. I just think we're going to be detained. I'm going to need to call my mom. Something is not good. And then a very remarkable thing happened. It might have been criminal activity, but it was remarkable nonetheless. He gets a call on his walkie-talkie, that there's a suspicious car that's circling the area, driving in circles. And he looks at us, and he says, just go. And he shows us through. And then within probably three seconds, they close the entire border crossing both sides, US into Canada, Canada into US. So I don't know what the car was doing. I'm thankful for it, though, because we were not detained in Canada. So. Why is it, though, when we have to prove who we are, who we say we are, it's just really intimidating. Has anybody ever had your identity stolen? Anybody? It's, it's like seriously rampant. Both of my parents have had their identity stolen in the past handful of years, and the hoops they had to jump through to get that fixed were unreal. It was weeks of phone calls and making stops at places and clearing things up with their bank. And the burden of proof on them to get that cleaned up and fixed up was just outrageous. And, and in fact, it still goes on to this day because my dad, this was a handful of years ago, but anytime he wants to make a major purchase, he still has to call his bank first and prove that he is Michael Elias. You know, so the burden of proof is never on the people taking our identity. It's on us to prove that we are who we say we are. That doesn't seem right. 
Here's a really staggering statistic. In 2022, identity theft cost Americans over $43 billion. That's outrageous. Over 1.1 million cases of identity theft were reported in the United States. 1.1 million in one year, and it costs over $43 billion. And that's either people using your information to open an account or just opening accounts in your name, but it is very rampant. And, and the thing is, the people stealing identities are so good at it, they're professional level at it, we don't know what's happening. There's scammers out there everywhere, right? I bet you at least half of us have had some experience, somebody trying to scam us in some way. The burden of proof always falls on us, doesn't it? To prove we are who we say we are. You know, our true identity has a lot of different parts to it, different angles. So for me, I'm a, a daughter, a mom, a wife, a sister, an aunt. I'm a teacher, a musician, I'm a friend. Those are kind of the obvious things that people see. And then there's some other things that maybe I keep a little bit more hidden, like I'm, I'm very klutzy. I fall down a lot, you can ask my kids. I hate bugs. I'm terrible with technology. I just have to hand it to my kids and ask them to show me what to do. I tend to worry a lot. Like there's things that we sort of keep hidden maybe, a little bit more hidden. And then there's other parts too. Sometimes we get our part of our identity are things that maybe we don't want people to know about at all. Maybe things that have been done to us or things that we've done that we're not proud of. Those are parts of our identity too that we might just want to keep from people from seeing. And then we spend a lot of time and effort to prove that we're not those things. And maybe sometimes we even overcompensate to prove that we're not those things, that we're really somebody else. We have a tendency, though, to hang on to those negative things, right? We might have had a fantastic life, but something we did decades ago, we keep that locked in and we hang on to the negative things and it, we let it push the positive out. It's kind of like um, if you ever do product reviews or restaurant reviews on Amazon or if you're trying a new restaurant, I always do that. And, and you might see 4,000 great reviews about this restaurant, right? But you see two people that didn't like it. They had a bad experience. That's what I lock in on, right? Two people didn't like it, we can't go there. Even though 4,000 people said it was great. In our humanness, we have a tendency to sort of cling to the negative, the negative parts. Today we're gonna to start a sermon series called Kingdom Purpose. And this week, we're going to be talking about our true identity and where it might be right now and where it should be in Jesus, in God. And next week, you're going to hear from Kristen Fitterer, our children's director, about finding your, your place in serving. And I'm excited to hear about that. But today, we're talking about our true identity. And when we have an encounter with God, when God crashes into our lives, how our identity changes. We're going to uh, uh, look at some, a biblical person today that I think is going to surprise you a little bit. 
You know, identity theft is not just financial. We have an enemy who wants to steal and distort and confuse our identities so that we don't realize or don't focus on our true value and our true purpose and our true worth in God's kingdom. And he's very crafty, just like the scammers out there. He's very crafty. The enemy uses some tactics to try to distort our identity. And the first thing he does, he uses hurt and pain and trauma, maybe from an experience that you've had in the past, something that's hurt you, or some, maybe something that you've done that you're ashamed of, just like we lock onto those negative things. If the enemy can keep us focused on that, he will do it because it distorts where our true identity is supposed to be. The second thing he uses is people's opinions, right? We might have a million friends, but it's the couple of friends who we think are whispering about us or gossiping about us or somebody's negative opinion. That's what we focus on. And if the enemy can keep us thinking about that, he's going to do it because that, support, that uh, distorts our true identity. He doesn't want us to know our value in God's eyes. And the third thing he uses is just thoughts that get fed into our own brains, right? Like, you're not enough. You're worthless. You're not good enough to do this. How many of us struggle with those thoughts sometimes? Like, I'm not cut out for that. I can't do that. I'm not good enough for that. I'm too sinful. I'm not smart enough. Thoughts he feeds into our heads, and we fixate on those. He distorts and confuses and twists our identity so that we do not realize our value in God's kingdom. And you know what? If we listen to this, we will get stuck there. I think maybe a lot of us or all of us have been stuck there at different times in our lives. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus offers redemption for all of that stuff, whether we caused it or whether it was caused to us. Jesus always offers redemption. And when we have that encounter, it changes everything. He makes beauty out of ashes. In our women's life group, and, and I want to encourage you, if you're not part of a life group yet, I do want to put in a plug for life groups. I love our women's group so much. We meet on the second and fourth Mondays of each month right here at the church at 7 o'clock. It, it is such a fantastic community. And if you haven't found a life group yet, I want to encourage you to do that. You will find a tribe of people that are there to support you, encourage you, be there for you, and just do life together. We have some really great life groups. So if you are looking for one or you have any interest, check the wall out in the, in the foyer right outside the door. There's a wall that has pictures and life group information. So I encourage you to do that. Come talk to me if you need some help with that too. Or Thomas, Thomas Dixon is passionate about life groups. He will help you get plugged in. But in our women's life group, we are studying a very interesting biblical character right now, biblical person named Rahab. And this is a little scandalous. You ready? Rahab was a prostitute. She was a harlot. 
Her home was in the wall of the city of Jericho. Maybe you've heard the story about the Battle of Jericho. And Jericho was the most important Canaanite fortress city in the Jordan Valley. And the Israelites were supposed to conquer Jericho. Jericho was a very wildly pagan, evil place. There were a lot of evil practices going on there. They were about as far from worshiping God as a place could be. They worshiped Ashtaroth, who was the goddess of the moon. And there were just some really evil practices going on there. Rahab was a prostitute who lived right at the gateway in the entrance to Jericho. And the Israelites were coming out of captivity in Egypt, and they were going to the promised land, and they had to conquer these lands to get where they were going. And God wanted them to conquer the different lands and clear out all the pagan evil stuff. So with her line of work, she would have been known, probably well-known, but not respected. She would have been marginalized, probably unaccepted by most people. People knew who she was. She was not the girl you wanted to bring home to meet mom and dad. And so Joshua, who is, is the, leading the Israelites at this time, what he does is this is a little history. He, he sends two spies to go into Jericho to see what they're coming up against. He, he wants them to check out the land, see what they're coming up against, so that they, they know kind of what tactics to take. So he sends two spies to Jericho. And these two spies enter Jericho and stop at the home of Rahab. And this is a pretty lengthy story. It's got a lot of really incredible parts to it. We're going to read some verses and summarize some parts of it. But I want to encourage you, read the whole story. It's in Joshua, the first six chapters of Joshua, and it's incredible. So I would encourage you this week, as you have time, read those six chapters of Joshua. We're going to just take a look, starting in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at, a, at Acadia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. Now, this wouldn't be uncommon for people to stop and stay there based on her line of work. But something interesting happens. Somebody sees them come in. Somebody's paying attention and sees them come in to Rahab's house at the gateway to Jericho and reports it to the king of Jericho. They report it to the king. And the king gets word back to Rahab, you've got Israelite spies in your home. They're the enemy. You need to get them out. Well, something remarkable happens. She lies to the king. Rahab lies to the king. And I want you to look at verse 4. We'll pick up the story in verse 4. Instead of getting the spies out of her house, Rahab had hidden the two men. But she replied to the king's men, Yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. 
They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. But actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax that she had laid out. Rahab the prostitute lies to the king of Jericho about the Israelite spies she has hiding on her roof. She's got enemy spies hiding on her roof, and she lies to the king. So the king's men go out into the city and beyond, and they're looking for the spies that they're not going to find because the spies are being hidden. And Rahab, remember, she's a harlot. She makes a testimony to the spies that she knows about the power of the one true God. We're going to look at Joshua 2.8. Listen to what she says. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror, for we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And then in verse 11, for the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Can you imagine that? Like the odds of her knowing who the one true God is are really stacked against her. She's in the most pagan place. She is a prostitute. The odds of her really understanding the power of the true God are pretty slim, right? But she makes a declaration. The Lord your God is the Lord of heaven above and the earth below. She understands the power of God. And undoubtedly, She's seen things, she's heard things, she's heard conversations from the people passing through her home. And she knows that it is true. Can you imagine the risk that she was taking if the king's men, or the king himself, finds out that she lied and that she hid the spies? I, I don't think it would go well for her, right? Like, she's probably done for. They're not going to tolerate that. So how sure did she have to be to do what she was doing, to lie to the king, hide the spies, make this declaration of faith? How sure did she have to be? This marginalized, rejected, lowly member of society was pretty brave. I'm not sure I would have been able to do all that. I think deep down she knew there was something better than the life she was in. So what happens next is that the king's men go on their way looking for the spies. And Rahab makes a deal with the spies. She makes a deal with them. And we're going to pick this up in verse 12. This is Rahab speaking to the spies in verse 12. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all their families. And this was the spy's response. We offer our own lives as a guarantee for your safety, the men agreed. If you don't betray us, we will keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us this land. Now, the next things that happen here is she lets them down through a rope 
through the window, tells them to escape to the hill country, wait there for three days, and then they'll be safe to go on their way. And they tell her to hang a scarlet rope in her window and have all her family members with her in her house when they come back to conquer Jericho and they will all be safe. And that is exactly how it plays out in those chapters. There's a series of events that take place. So again, I want to encourage you to read those chapters, but that's exactly how it plays out. Joshua gives the the Israelites, after the spies come back and report to him, he gives them the commands of how to proceed with conquering Jericho, and they remember their promise to Rahab. So I'm going to jump to chapter 6, verse 22. Meanwhile, Joshua said to the two spies, keep your promise, go to the prostitute's house and bring her out, along with all her family. The men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, mother, brothers, and all the other relatives who were with her. They moved her whole family to a safe place near the camp of Israel. And then in verse 25, so Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho. It played out just like they planned. Rahab and her family were safe. She did her part and they did their part. She undoubtedly was a little bit scared through all that as she watched her town get conquered. But she trusted in the Lord God, even though nobody around her knew or trusted in him. It was a change of heart in her faith and then actions coupled with that that allowed Rahab to be a key player in protecting the nation of Israel. Think about that. She was a prostitute. God used her to protect the entire nation of Israel. Where the world sees harlot, God saw a hero. And Rahab was actually the first recorded Gentile convert. How about that? She didn't have to clean her life up before God used her to do mighty, mighty kingdom work. God didn't choose her because she was perfect. He chose her because she was willing and she understood the power of God. You may have heard of Rick Warren. He's the pastor of Saddleback Church in California. He also wrote a really great book called The Purpose Driven Life. He's written other books as well. I heard him speak recently, and he had this to say, in God's garment of grace, even broken trees bear fruit. We are all broken. God loves to use broken people. The biggest kingdom acts in the Bible were done by broken people. And you hear us say this a lot at this church, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. He's not interested in your history. He's not concerned. I don't want to say he's not interested. He's interested in every part of your life. But he's not concerned about your history or things that you've done or things that you think you're not capable of doing. He's concerned about your heart 
and your willingness. The labels, the whispers, the titles, that stuff doesn't matter. He's looking for willing hearts, which is what Rahab was. And he looks at us and he says, I don't care about your past. I don't care about this. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're my child. I am proud of you, and I have kingdom work for you to do. Something really remarkable happens in Rahab's life after this. Now, I think I have read this passage countless times, and I never noticed it until recently. But we're going to take a look at what happened next in Rahab's life, or down the line in Rahab's life. Now, last week, Pastor Dave and I had a conversation about names and the importance of names, and he was telling me how his men's group read a chapter, and I can't remember where it was, but it was just all names. Greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, say hi to so-and-so, and, you know, we just had a conversation about why is there a whole chapter of just names? And, and I think I can see why there might be, at least in this case. In Matthew chapter 1, In Matthew chapter 1, the lineage of Jesus is listed out. And I think all the other times I've read this, I just skimmed through it and paid no attention. But we're going to look at it today. I'm going to start in verse 1, read a handful of verses. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And the lineage continues on for several more verses until verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Did you see that? Rahab the prostitute's name is in the lineage of Jesus. She went from harlot to royalty. She's in the royal line of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Does that tell you a little something about who God's willing to use Check this out. Maybe you're familiar with, with, with what we commonly call the Hall of Faith heroes in Hebrews chapter 11. And in this chapter, it lists out heroic people of the Bible who are all also broken people. And it talks about Enoch and Abel and Noah and Abraham and Moses, and there's a big list. But I want you to check out verse, 11, or verse 31 of Hebrews 11. It says this, it was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab the prostitute is listed in the Hall of Faith Heroes of the Bible. And you know what I think something is interesting here? They still call her Rahab the prostitute, and I think that was very intentional, even though that was not the rest of her life, right? But I think that is there for us to see God uses anybody 
and everybody that is a willing heart. I think that's why that's still in there. What labels are you listening to? What's stuck in your head that you might be fixated on that's keeping you from feeling like you are good enough? You are enough to do the kingdom work that God is calling you to do. If you're listening to the sneers and the gossip and the whispers or the voices in your head, that is not what God wants us to be listening to. Here's what God says about your identity. Let this sink in. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. See what God says our true identity is? We are chosen. He chose you. You're a son or a daughter of the king. That makes you royalty also. You're a holy nation and you belong to God. We had no identity, but verse 10 said, because of the grace and mercy of God, we have an identity that is found in him. How about this one? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. Before he made the world, he loved us. I think that's something that we don't even have the slightest idea of the depth of love that God has for us. Before he made the world, he loved us and he already knew us. He already called us, adopted us, and chose us because the Bible says that is what he wanted to do. So if he wanted to do all that, I have no reason to think he doesn't want to use us to do kingdom work. When our lives have an encounter with Jesus, when he crashes into our lives, it changes our identity. The old stuff doesn't matter anymore. You know, in Revelation chapter 2, the Bible says that when we get to heaven, we'll receive a stone with a new name on it that only we will understand. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I don't. I know that mine is not going to say Kim the Worrier. And I know that Rahab's doesn't say Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the harlot. Maybe it says Rahab the brave, Rahab the kind, Rahab that stood up to the enemy. When we have an encounter with God, it changes our identity. When we choose to put our faith in Jesus... He wipes the slate clean. And even when we make mistakes, we're all going to, right? 
He keeps wiping that slate clean. And our identity is found in him, and he's not looking at any of the yucky stuff that we want to hide. He's looking at you saying, I love you. I'm so proud of you. You are my beloved. You belong to me. You're in the royal line of King Jesus. I'm going to close with this. When we choose to follow Jesus, our identity becomes who God says we are, not who the world says we are, not who the whispers say we are, not who the media says we are, not who our boss or whoever says we are. It becomes who God says we are. And he says we are his. God is doing a new thing. The Lord says, behold, I make all things new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Let's pray. God, I'm just thankful. I'm thankful for the testimony of Rahab that even in a life steeped in sin, she was able to serve you and follow you and be a life changer and a game changer. And God, I thank you that you see us through your lens of love and grace and mercy and that you don't care about the things we've done or that have been done to us. What you care about is our heart and our future with you. And I thank you, God, that that is what exactly grace and mercy is and what Jesus paid for on the cross, God. Help us to let that get settled in our hearts today, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name.